Hi, and welcome to the second episode of the State of US International Applications 2022, our companion podcast to our latest report. I'm joined for the second episode by Pranay Mahajan, who is our regional sales manager for Asia. And Pranay joins me at the end of a 12 week stint in India, where he's been, well, what have you been doing, Pranay? Hey, James. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been good. It's been interesting. Uh, besides getting a series of stomach infections, of course, it's, uh, it's been otherwise been, uh, been really fun um, hitting a lot of different conferences out here in India, which is great. And it's, um, it's been really nice to see people in person again. I think for the longest time I was stuck in Hong Kong and we've not had a chance to really interact and engage with some of our partner schools. And uh, it's been really nice getting to see people in person. So that's been fantastic. Cool. Well, I thank you for joining me, battle-hardened by, as you say, multiple st- stomach bugs. Um, and um, <laughs> thank you, thanks for taking the time to record this with me anyway, because um, I, as I said, you know, as with our last guest, Abby, I think um, I'm really excited to interview you and just to hear more about, you know, just your insights on this report and kind of what it tells us about like, the area in which you work. Um, but before I do that, I thought it'd be good for anyone listening to this just to maybe just learn a little bit more about what you do at Bridgeview. And so could you just maybe just give us a short introduction to like, you know, your role at Bridgeview and maybe even tell us a little bit about, um, cause you've, you're, you've worked at Bridgeview for longer than me, haven't you? But you, you, and you, so you've worked in Asia Pacific for all that time. I think that's right. Isn't it? Yep. That's correct. Definitely. Um, and yeah, I, I'll, I'll just go ahead, I guess. Um, I, I've been with the company, as you said, James, for almost five years now. So it's been fantastic, uh, kind of seeing, seeing uh, a lot of growth, particularly in the, in the APAC region. Um, So we've actually, you know, we started the office, of course, in 2016, and I joined in 2017. And since then, um, I started off working with um, a lot of schools. I was working in an SDR role initially, and it's been nice getting to call schools, uh, tap into new markets. I mean, I think when I joined, we didn't even have a single school in India at the time, um, whereas now we have a really rapidly growing community of about 45 schools now, which is great to see. Um, But at the same time, there are several other markets we've tapped into where we had absolutely no presence. Um, markets like Japan, Korea, um, even some of Central Asia countries as well, where I look after now. And I guess my job to summarize really is to reach out to any schools that have ever heard of BridgeU, but they are a good fit. And by good fit, we mean any school that has a, you know, a number of international students that are looking for you know, a potential university where uh, they'll, they'll be able to, to attend and, and really find the best fit course and, and subject area. So yeah, that's, that's my role. Yeah, no, and, and I think it's I, 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 it's always fair to say as well that I think I've actually really learned a lot from you in the time that I've worked here because I think you've taught me a lot about how the, um, just how that whole sort of market's changed. And you've taught me, I think, a lot yep. about something which I think that we work really hard to um, convey to our universities now as well, which is the university partners that we work with, which is that, you know, the importance of treating each market in a really nuanced way and understanding the very local and regional needs that the students have in that market. And I think, um, yeah, well, I'd echo what you said, really, like watching that those that grow has been really interesting. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's such a pleasure to have you as the second guest. Um, and obviously, you know, again, we're here to talk about um, the recent US international applications report that we've published um, and just kind of get your take on it. So um, I'm going to start with a question that I kick off um, all of these interviews with, really, which is sort of, can you talk to me a little bit about just you know, you've, I know you've read the report, you've had a look over it. What, what interested you or sort of surprised you even about this year's report, you know, and I suppose obviously because of, because you're my guest for today, we're talking about specifically how that relates to Asia Pacific. Yeah, thanks. You know, what's interesting. I mean, I, uh, 
I'm often looking over kind of reports that are targeting, uh, you know, our school audience. So this was really interesting for me to get a chance to see kind of what are some of the content that we're curating for universities. And I think one of the things that really stood out, of course, um, we know that the United States is a very, very important, very critical region for uh, a number of different international schools that we work with around the APAC region, but India and China seem to stand out. Um, and what, what I found interesting was that I always, with the conversations that I've been having, I think COVID's obviously had a tremendous impact in the way in which people are, uh, I guess, assessing their particular choice uh, for universities. But the, the, the one statistic that really stood out to me was um, the fact that uh, Bridges students, I think we found that they're more likely to apply to highly ranked uh, QS institutions. Um, and we expected that, uh, you know, there would be a decline uh, this particular year. But what I found really fascinating was that when we actually remove India and China from the statistics, it turns out that actually uh, applications to institutions in every rank group actually increased, um, which is super interesting to see. And I think that is quite reflective of some of the insights that I've been capturing, certainly on my end. Um, I think obviously there has been some interest, uh, I guess, I wouldn't say waning, but it, it has kind of been a little bit shook uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, headlines were not helping, I guess, because of COVID. We had Trump uh, back way back when, and obviously that's that sentiment has changed as well, which is, I think has a, probably had an impact in the in the increase we're seeing. Um, but at the same time, it's just fascinating that when you take, uh, I, I think it, if I look at India, China in particular, I think what's really interesting to note is that India has been seeing. Uh, a rise in applications, particularly to other countries as well. Um, but it's not necessarily just down to cost. Obviously, like parents are uh, increasingly more concerned about security, about safety. Um, at the same time, there are a lot more alternatives that we're actually seeing on the ground here as well, locally as well. Um, and if I look at kind of uh, what, what students are targeting, a lot of times they're looking at the United States for uh, a potential liberal arts education. But here on the ground, we're actually seeing that we're we're having state of the art facilities at a number of uh, esteemed universities like Flame University, Kriya, uh, Pluksha, Op Jindal. These are some very very big names that you might see down locally uh, in India, and that's uh, interesting to, to note. That you know why would I have to necessarily go to the United States when I'm getting uh, education here at a fraction of the cost? So it's not just about scholarships; it's just the overall cost has has come down quite a bit. Um, but at the same time, going back to that point around security and safety, that's also quite interesting, you know, that um, schools in China really are um, also talking about this, that parents aren't necessarily looking at the U.S. as the the gold standard anymore, that, you know, we're seeing a lot more applications to the U.K. as well as a result of this. So some very, very interesting trends here. There's, there's, there's a couple of other just follow-up questions I want to ask you about that. So that's interesting because obviously, yeah, we, we have like, as you as you say, we've, we double down on the report and we, we do mention, we do give a couple of case studies about what happens if you were to, it was a thought experiment essentially, you know, what happens if you remove India and China from certain data sets? But obviously you, you've given me a couple of really interesting cultural reasons why China and India, Indian like students and parents might not find the US as um, compelling or attractive a destination as perhaps they once did. But then, of course, my question to you then is, why is that not happening in the other Asian markets? Because, of course, if you if you if you go into the, um, you know, if we go into the data for this year, what we see is actually that there are decreases in China and in Indian uh, regions. But you know, we we obviously see countries like Pakistan, um, Japan. Yeah. I think Bangladesh is up, is up as well, you know, so those, those are obviously regions where the reverse is happening. So could you talk to me a little bit more about that perhaps, or, or have you got any uh, thoughts on why that could be happening? 
Yeah, no, definitely. You know, it's it's interesting to see that um, a lot of the sentiment that I have actually seen in my own kind of conversations, anecdotally on the ground, with uh, you know, as you as you listed there, if we look at the trends in Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, even in Japan, let's say for instance, um, and even Central Asian countries for that matter. You know, if you look at Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, where we do actually have a very strong presence on the ground. I think that sentiment is very much in line with trends that we saw in, in some of our previous reports, you know, where even though there was an increment in other interest in other destinations like Germany or, um, you know, China or Italy, for example, or even South Korea uh, for, for university education, I think it's just interesting to see that it's in line with that particular report, because I think in 2021 grads, we saw that over 85% of shortlisted universities on Bridge U were actually institutions located in the UK, US, and Canada. And I think probably if we have to look into kind of the reasons why this has happened, I think at the end of the day, at its core, a lot of the students that are applying through Bridge U to these destinations, um, particularly the US and, and UK and Canada for that matter, are students that are really at the top of their class. Um, these are students that are on the lookout for for scholarship opportunities as well. And I think as we know, when you, you speak relatively, uh, and maybe you're drawing comparisons with local op options versus let's say the US or the UK, the US does stand out as a really good destination um, for a lot of frontier and emerging markets uh, that are not, let's say, India and China. And for that reason, even if we look at diversity trends, for instance, it really helps that we're seeing a lot of these students from a lot of these countries still looking at the U.S. as uh, a really, really good option, and probably a, a bank. They're going to you know, they're gonna get the bank for their buck as well if they're if they're looking at uh, this particular region. So uh, a lot of interesting trends I think are coming out from these regions as well. But can I, can I sort of press you on that? And so why do you think though in those markets the U.S. is still perhaps um, a more attractive destination than it is in shall we say the those more, and I, and I don't like to use this word, I, I kind of use it, use it in sort of inverted commas, traditional markets, like, like why do you think in those like new, those new places that you've just mentioned, the US continues to be so interesting? Well, I think it's the quality of the education as well. And probably for, for lack of a better word, I guess, probably when we look at the uh, comparison in quality for local options, let's say, I mean, the US does stand out as the gold standard. You know, people are looking for those other experiences, it, it doesn't change the fact that everyone does now see that, you know, we're back to campus life where we're no longer, um, there's a, a certain uniqueness about being on campus in the United States. It's, it's an experience that, uh, a, a very holistic, I'd say, experience that you don't necessarily get in other regions. And so my guess would be that that is actually a big, big reason why we're actually seeing that particular trend um, still continuing to hold. Um, also at the end of the day, again, if we compare India and China, I mean, Chinese students, a lot of times the graduates that we see on Bridge U are not actually just Chinese nationals. A lot of times we see applications to um, uh, not just the US, but we see increasing applications to other reasons. It's actually because there are a lot of Korean students, a lot of Japanese students as well that are graduating from Chinese high schools. Whereas, um, as I mentioned with India, you have a load of different uh, opportunities on the ground as well that are, I guess, you know, as far as we compare with the United States. I mean, they, they do have some very fantastic kind of professors, a lot of visiting professors as well on the ground in places like India. And you might not necessarily see that in, let's say, Central Asia, for example. Um, so I think when we speak about alternatives, I think that's one of the big reasons why that trend perhaps is holding for, for some of the other regions outside of India and China. So would you say then potentially that a, a, a lesson for 
US institutions, you know, US admissions teams who, you know, any of whom might be like listening to this episode that, um, that essentially actually the, the, what what's going on really is that, is that China and India's, their higher education systems are beginning to emerge in their own right. And they're beginning to offer that sort of same, uh, well, that level of quality and, you know, and, and as they're starting to could be real competitors with the US, whereas actually, you know, as you say, um, it might be that in some of these new emerging markets that you work in, um, the higher education sector there might not be as fully established. And so therefore going further afield is still more attractive. Yeah, definitely. I think like that's, that's something that, that is, uh, that that's something that I think U S institutions are going to have to keep a lookout for, you know, and I think one eye that has to be kind of kept on, uh, if you look at alternative destinations as well, like one eye probably has to be kept at. UK because the UK does present a very compelling argument for a lot of uh, students, and that's not just for those sort of frontier markets that I'm talking about. But we're talking about you know big markets like China and India are also seeing a lot of interest in the the UK as well. Uh, I think initially people were very wary about things like Brexit, and obviously that trend holds in for for US institutions as well. But when you look at things like uh, you know, the, the relatively speaking, strong vaccination program that helps restore a lot of confidence. And just yesterday, we have this article, right, about the graduates from top non-UK universities also graduating. Uh, but, you know, if they're going to graduate in the last five years, they're eligible for a work visa as well. So I think employment prospects uh, are also very, very important. It's not just down to like, down to cost, which is funny because typically speaking, I mean, we know that you know, uh, as far as kind of scholarships and things like that go, those are big key reason, uh, reasons why you might see students applying to the United States. But, um, you know, if there is the promise of work, it might just be that students and their parents see much more value for money in, in looking at places like the UK as well, uh, which holds up in terms of um, in terms of the quality of the education. Uh, yeah, I, I think you've touched on something which actually, if you don't mind, I would like to maybe just, just chat about for another couple of minutes with something really interesting because I, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and I see this in a, in a couple of other articles, which is that increasingly um, the post-study options for, the, for those students is really important. Now, you know, I, I think I think if I was to sort of, you know, come up with like a couple of different examples, I'd cite Canada as the one where, you know, I, I've been sort of, keep an eye on that and I'm sort of impressed by the way that you know they've begun they've they've created a really strong infrastructure of like ways it's becomes easy to become a resident a resident yeah. and a citizen after you've studied whereas um you know I, I know that for example other destinations like Australia and New Zealand um have, have had a more difficult time with with COVID recently and it's and it's and and, and it's taken longer for them to um put the worst of the pandemic behind them but at the same time you know I think sometimes the um what do I want to say that, that, that they can, I, there's almost like from an, from a distance that it looks as though they're moving too slowly and it can sometimes seem as though that indecision and that kind of like slow slowness to act means that students in that time will go, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm welcome here. And it goes back to something that Abby said in our previous episode, which is that, you know, it's really important. I think that, um, at universities remember, you know, you're not just asking a student to pick an institution, you're, you're asking them to pick a home. Yeah. And I think that that actually, you know, you're, you're raising a really interesting point here, uh, especially when we connect that to the case study that we actually saw in this particular report, you know, with Simon uh, talking about how he was really frustrated around um, Simon. And sorry, just to, for, for the audience to know that Simon uh, is a university guidance counselor from the British uh, International School in Ho Chi Minh City. 
uh, and, and a very avid user of, of BridgeU. So it was really great to, to get to see here that he talks about how we're seeing an increasing number of students being waitlisted by US institutions. But as a direct result of that, you know, students are, if, if you're taking too long to accept students as well, you're seeing them going to other places. Um, better opportunities might be in the UK or, or down in Asia as well on the ground. Yeah, I, 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 I think I agree with you that I think that was one of the most interesting interviews that I did for this report, because I think, um, you know, I, I, I think Simon was full of, you know, he had, he had lots of like praise for, for, for many of the institutions he, he deals with, but he, I think one of the sort of key takeaways I got from that interview was, um, and I, I want to be careful, I don't misquote him, I have to get him on at some point, see if he, see if he would come along and speak as well. But, um, but it was interesting that he, yeah, he mentioned to me that there are some sort of legacy aspects of the US system, which are just so, I've just been going on for such a long time. I mean, you know, everyone knows that on the 1st of August, you refresh your computer and the new common app prompts are out, right? It's like the US has got, I think more than any other country has got like this like seasonality to it. It's, you, you just know that, and you know that the early decision deadlines are the early decision deadlines and the regular decision deadlines are the regular decision deadlines. It, it, it feels very fixed in granite. And, I, I, you know, I, I think, but I think sometimes, you know, um, I've written a lot of the content for, for, our, for our students to help them navigate that process. But I do sometimes wonder if that, that those processes could be reformed or just tweaked a little bit to make them a little bit more malleable or just a little bit more um, accessible for international students. What, what do you think to that? Yeah, definitely. I think that those processes can can definitely be you know adjusted, and and I think we've seen as well the the level of agility that we've actually seen from universities has also been been great. You know, if we look at standardized tests, for example, back at uh, back when the, the pandemic initially kicked yeah. off, um, also the flexibility that that a lot of uh, U.S. institutions as well that, that they were showing towards um, switching from let's say an examination um, based grading system to more doing, you know, more internal assessments. If we, if we talk about the IB, for example. Um, and so, you know, when we look at that, I, I guess when push comes to shove, it is important if the U S institutions wants to stay competitive to, to really have a think about that, where are we going to, you know, get our um, processes changed so that we're making it more favorable for the markets that we are targeting. Um, but I think it's, it's important at the end of the day to also see, you know, I think last year, both US and UK universities saw the highest number of, um, you know, acceptances. Uh, and then we, we, we probably know the reasons behind that. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to, to really have a think about the fact that it could be that the, um, the, the wait lists that we're talking about, um, that's that, um, sorry, Simon is talking about here as well. It could be just a direct result of this recalibration as, you know, COVID is, is, um, is dissipating as well. So different, different insights that we're actually seeing. Yeah. And it's, I think it's important not to be too, too punitive, obviously to, to universities too. Right. I mean, you know, I think, I think they, I think they are trying their best, their best to sort of sometimes readjust after what has been a really strange and, um, very like shocking kind of couple of years for everybody. And I think, I think, you know, definitely that you, you do see that within universities, you know, we've spoken to a lot of them and they're, they're also trying to adjust. And I think, but I think it's, um, what's there was there was a sort of, we, we talked about you know with abby in the last interview we talked about how international students are you know quite savvy customers and, and i think I, I i always feel a little bit cautious using the word customer but um there's another stat which which i think we, we talked about in a recent bridge webinar that i participated in which is that 49 percent of bridge students will apply to more than one country and i think when you break that down i think it's something like 24 percent will actually apply to three countries so 
I think Simon's point is a really interesting one to the extent that, you know, I think, I don't know if, it, if you sort of, if you noticed the same or were interested by the same piece of his interview that I was, where he mentioned that actually that waitlisting can get frustrating because, but it can also be quite liberating because actually the student, if they have got an application in process to South Korea or to Japan or to one of the other local competitors that you just talked about, they, there's still a risk they could just shrug their shoulders and go, well, okay, I've got a place at another university and they don't have a waitlisting um, policy. So I'll just go there. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and you know, it's funny, you're, you're taking me back 10 years uh, here, James, because, well, 11 rather, uh, uh, since I was making the decision myself about where to go. And, you know, nothing changes at the end of the day. I mean, I think people, international students in particular, they have a, a variety of different options available. And granted, they might, you know, narrow down certain um, destinations and, and say that they're actually better for them for a variety of reasons. It could be family, it could be cost, it could be anything really. Um, but I myself was, when I was applying to primarily U.S. universities, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to end up in a, a U.S. institution. And it's funny that, you know, a lot of these potential wait lists, they, there might be some, in, the, COVID might have had some impact on, on you know, the, the decision-making of, of universities, but I too was waitlisted back then for, uh, you know, universities were not exactly offering a lot of financial aid at the time. We were just coming out of the, uh, the global recession as well. I think that had an impact on college endowments. Um, and then, I, you know, for the universities that I did get accepted in, I was comparing the United States and, uh, of all places, Hong Kong, which is where I'm uh, currently based, um, uh, I guess not physically right now. But that was interesting to see as well, that it, because I knew that Hong Kong is a good option, because I knew about the state of the economy in Hong Kong uh, in comparison to the United States, the resilience as well, the job market, it just made my job a lot easier. Um, and that's the thing, you know, let's not forget that international students are third culture kids. They do have the ability to adjust very easily to different destinations. And that is perhaps one thing that will always, you know, stay at the back of their minds that there's always another option. Yeah, no, and I think, I think you've, again, touched on something really interesting, which is that, and it comes back to that thing that, um, that that's come up in, in previous conversations I've had with, you know, both with our schools and our universities, but it's the, that thing of like, you know, at the end of the day, like when we talk about <laughs> where you're based, you know, the US is very far away, right? And it's just, I think that, and I do sometimes, you know, I, I sometimes see some commentary written on, um, you know, company on websites like Inside Higher Ed and um, and some of the some of the other kind of like publications that that tend to sort of like publish the US higher education um, commentary and and analysis. And there is a lot of hand wringing, and there's a lot of kind of like why 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 aren't we the most sort of popular destination anymore? Like what what do we have to do? And you, and you kind of sometimes you want to say, well, actually, the answer isn't a particularly complicated one. It is just about, you know, as you say, making like um, those decisions easier by just making the process a little bit more um, transparent. And I almost sense like transparency in the US application system will maybe be the key theme that comes out of like this report and actually the two podcast interviews that, that I've done so far. Yep. I, and I, I totally agree, you know, but, but at the same time, you know, there's, there's an interesting thing. I think a couple of years back, we really, um, I think, I'm not sure James, if this might've been you or another one of our, um, our, our team members wrote about kind of the black box that UK admissions has been. Um, and it, I'm, I'm bringing this up again, because I, what's interesting is that I've actually heard a lot of complaints from Indian schools in particular, uh, that I've been up to, on the ground with over here. And they say that one of the issues they face with not just Indian universities, but let's say we see some students, you might, might, you might have um, 
some Korean and Japanese nationals over here that are using their IB grades to apply to other destinations, uh, to, to apply to their home country, sorry. And what they're seeing is that it's really, really difficult for them to, to know what the requirements are or what university would be a good fit for them. And so I think when you put things into perspective, the United States, that's probably another big reason that there's a certain degree of, of standardization, um, information availability, a lot of transparency that we still have available in the U.S. And that, I think, is, is probably an interesting point to, as to why it becomes, let's say, an easier option to apply to the U.S., provided, of course, that you have all the other uh, uh, you know, checkboxes ticked off, that it's not going to be a problem for cost, uh, that your security and everything is, is important, and that's, that's looked after as well. So um, that, that, I think, is also an interesting, uh, interesting point that I, that I picked up in my conversations over here in India. So, th so this is this is kind of interesting. We've got our first, I think, what is like our first philosophical difference um, between guests on the uh, on the on the podcast, which is which is, or at least in this series anyway, um, because obviously when I spoke in in, the, in episode one, when when I spoke to, to Abby, it was it was very much she was she was saying about how she she was still fine. She's because she I think she was probably four years behind you in terms of applying to the US, and obviously she applied from a different country. She was applying from a more European context, but. Um, but she um, spoke to me a lot about how you know she's even even for her like um, you know the, some aspects of the the US um, applications admissions system you know for example she didn't feel like the, the US admission system always communicates to IB students actually the IB and that four year co college major minor process um, that you go through in the in the US degree they're quite similar but she she felt that they didn't really um, that that could be better communicated whereas what, I guess what you're saying is actually in your part of the world, actually, the, almost like, I don't want to say the reverse, but it, you, well, I don't know. Are you saying that it's the, the reverse is true, that actually that standardization and that kind of consistency can actually be one of the things that's maybe keeping the US more competitive? Certainly. And I think that transparency that we see, you know, that information transparency is very key. You know, in a lot of the conversations, I mean, I guess I, at the end of the day, I'm in sales, right? And my initial conversations with schools are always going to be about the challenges they see with the way in which they present information to um, their students or what information is really out there. And one of the things that always stands out is the, the, the constant complaint. And that's not just, by the way, um, let's just say for, for um, emerging markets like India, even in well-developed, um, established uh, higher education markets like Japan, for instance, there is very little information uh, that's available online. In fact, most of the uh, information that I guess uh, counselors are packaging together to present to their students are on the are on the basis of you know several years of interactions that they've had and and obviously there's a limitation because there's only so far back that they can go in terms of the interest that IB students have in some of these other destinations. But that's where I think the U.S. wins out. I've, if we even look at our our own college counseling platform, BridgeU, interesting to see right that we our, our product team has been been able to do a really great job in in pulling out statistics. But one of the first markets that they do that that they have the ability to do that in is the United States because of just how sophisticated, um, you know, the setup is in terms of the information availability, um, the ease of application. I, I, I do think that that is, I'm sure, a, a critical factor uh, that that influences as well, uh, whether a student is on the fence. Uh, if, if that student's on the fence about applying to a university in India versus the US, I'm sure it's going to make it a lot easier if they knew exactly what SAT score they need to, to stand a solid chance or um, the same goes for their IB grades, for example. Yeah, and I think I, I I would agree with everything you just said based on the fact that I've um, had to research 
the different university application systems for some of the ebooks that we've published, which are, which I know you, you'd have used in some of your sales calls. I think there was one that we did a couple of years ago that's remained one of our flagship ones where we sort of did sort of like we put all the major university countries side by side and we did like a we we, we did like a kind of like step by step guide to sort of applying internationally basically. And I do remember um finding it really empathizing with college counsellors when I got to the countries like South Korea and Japan. And it potentially could be, you know, it's, again, it's not to assign blame to anybody, but it could just be because they, they are sort of slightly more emerging higher education systems and they're, you know, they've reformed their own higher education systems quite a lot in the last few years. But you are right. It was harder, I found, to, because the other, the other thing that I've realised is really important, especially when we do bridge new content, is consistency of information, right? I always try and make sure that I think the information that's on in our content is um, as accurate and as up-to-date and as, as impartial as possible. But it's really hard in certain countries because, um, as you say, there's no standardization. So, so you've got to make sure that, and you can actually find, you know, it's, it's a bit like doing, going back to university and doing your research, you'll find that actually sometimes two research sources don't always fully align with each other. Whereas, um, when I, when I had to sort of like learn my way around the U S system in order to start writing content for Bridge I found the U S system, you know, there's a lot to learn, but at least you know where to look. Right. And I think, I think, I think that's probably, there's, there's, I think there's definitely an element of truth in that. Um, just before I get, before I, I we're kind of just, uh, just in the like final five minutes, would it be, would you be able to kind of just uh, some kind of closing remarks, kind of just talk a little bit about, um, how you've talked a little about how, about how these markets are changing from a sort of where they're applying to, but in terms of the types of international schools that you've seen in the last, in the time that you've worked at bridge you, like how, how, cause, how are international schools themselves changing in these markets? Because I, I, cause I, you know, I come back to this thing that. Is, is, is again a recurring theme in our university's content, which is that international schools are changing, the definition is changing. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. And um, there's a couple of things here because obviously, uh, I guess the, the well kind of uh, divided or well segmented um, market here would be China, where there is a, a, a strong distinction, I guess, between international schools, what we call our international schools and also bilingual schools. Um, and that's been interesting for us as we've expanded. You know, we work with over 115 schools in China today. Um, and obviously now we're seeing a lot more of an appetite come from more bilingual schools. And I think that's the interesting part where we're seeing, and, and that's the same stands for kind of in India. You know, traditionally we would have, let's say, been going, um, partnering with schools that are, you know, solely IB, solely A-level or solely a, high, a U.S. high school. Um, which is, I guess, rare in, in the case of India. But now we're seeing a lot more Indian curriculum schools show a lot of appetite over here. And I think the one thing that really stood out in many of the conversations is just how much more involved school leadership is in these in these calls. Um, and that, that stood out to me because it seems like there is uh, an overarching conversation around how principals are subtly seeing the value in, in students pursuing an international education. They're seeing the value for, for parents. And as a result of that, they're getting a lot more involved and they would like, you know, for, for that reason, they, they know that the, um, that the access to information is very key. And that's why platforms like ours are particularly helpful for those uh, particular schools. And I think that's, that's an interesting thing that it's not just those schools that are, let's say, strictly speaking, IB schools. It's these kind of, um, I wouldn't call it tier B, but maybe tier two schools that have multiple curricula. Um, that they are providing. It's just interesting to note just how much more appetite we're seeing for this. And it's not just, you know, traditionally those school students might have actually gone to external consultancies uh, because 
within their own um, graduating class, they might have been the only one to maybe five to 10 max out of a graduating class at 150 or so. Um, but that is definitely changing. And I think that's that's one positive to take away from all this, that the international um, market is is definitely uh, still growing. And I, I guess that's that's uh, a trend. Um, yeah, that's that is in a sense everlasting in a way. Um, but yeah, that's that's I think one very interesting insight that I was able to capture from my conversations. Yeah, I I know that I think that's all really useful and fascinating stuff. And I think I remember you and I worked on a webinar a couple of weeks ago in Bangladesh, and I remember you know noticing on there that um, you know that struck me as a very like emerging market of the type that you're talking about. Um, and one of the things that really struck me is obviously we, what, what we did in that webinar is we were obviously there to um, provide a one-off camp uh, web, uh, workshop for college counsellors. And would you say then that the expectation of these principals and by extension the parents is forcing the college counselling industries and sectors in those countries to therefore um, almost kick into another gear and be like, right, well now we need to, we've got we've got more expectations for parents to to deliver for our students, and therefore we're going to have to learn more of the nuts and bolts of college counselling. Definitely. And I think this is not to say that, you know, um, the other kind of, so, so to say for these markets, the other uh, model or the agency model is, is dissipating. So to say, if anything, I mean, the agency model does offer uh, a lot of avenues as well for, for schools, but I think the recognition of the fact that, okay, we need something that's actually in-house, um, whether that's for the benefit of the students, whether that's for, um, you know, to, to reel in more prospective parents and invite more uh, international enrollments for their particular school. We're definitely seeing a lot more um, interest in setting up an in-house college counseling um, department, and that's uh, that's a real positive. I mean, I guess not all schools have the option to do it on a full-time basis, but you know that that's another thing that we track at Bridgeview here at Bridgeview that we are also keeping a note on just how many more um, schools that are coming in are actually. Uh, let's say, so to say, non-dedicated teams. You might have different subject teachers that are lending their um, their time into developing this function, and that that's certainly something that we're definitely seeing rising at the moment. And that's, I think, that's a really interesting thing to close on because I do find, in some ways, that well, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you as a guest, really, which is that in some ways, I think the Bridgeview Schools sales team that you work on has, in some ways, mirrored the journey that universities are going on, right? Which is you, we've had to learn and adapt to these new counselors and what they need, and actually. They are quite time poor, and I do think that actually, you know, in some ways, I, I almost want to sort of um, have university partners like shadow you for a day so that they could learn this, how different every international school is, and how in many cases, you know, you have to, you know, your sales calls are. You always ask me for resources and for and for for, for content to share with them because they they are quite so, they're so time poor, and um, you know, they don't have ready access to all this information that we've been talking about in this last half an hour about, you know, the different types of application system in different countries. So, yeah, I, I think, um, I think that's a really sort of nice observation to close on as well in terms of just like how, you know, in some ways Bridgeview's journey has really mirrored our university partners. And I, and I think that's really interesting. Um, I've, I think I'm going to end up, this is going to be my thing I'm going to say to every guest, Pranay, which is that I love, it's so I love talking to you. It's so interesting. And I could talk to you for another like couple of hours, but unfortunately we're going to have to end it there. Um, but it's been so, yeah, so interesting talking to you. And I'm, again, I think hopefully this will be a really interesting learning experience for anyone who's who's listening and who's reading our US report. Um, just a reminder that you can download that from www.universities.bridgeu.com forward slash blog forward slash resources. Um, and of course the full report is there for you to read. So please do check it out. And if you haven't, please read 
sure as to say, listen to episode one of this um, podcast, which was with Abby Lana, who's another of our content writers. But yeah, thanks, Renee. Um, and I'd love to have you back at some point in the future. Definitely. Thanks so much for having me.